Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. So her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning her. But they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we call upon you since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you. Mercifully enlighten us by your spirit in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we ought so that we might glorify your holy name in all our living And teach our neighbor by our good example, rendering to you the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you graciously to receive us among the number of your servants and children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The prophet Zephaniah has been used by God to rebuke the sins of Israel, the sins of Judah in particular, that's chapter 1. And the sins of the nations surrounding Judah, and that's chapter 2. And now it circles back in chapter 3 to rebuke the sins of his people in Judah and dispersed among the nations. It's not until really after this this section, verses 9, but really 12 of chapter 3, that the Son of God's grace breaks through the clouds of his judgment in this book. So today we take up those final castigations against sin. As I've tried to make clear up to this point, the church today 
The church today has fabricated an idol out of God. The God of cheap grace, the God of cheap grace bears no resemblance to God's description of himself in the scriptures, not in the Pentateuch, not in the prophets, not in the gospels, not in the epistles. Right? The evangelical and reformed church has fabricated a God who is a supplement to life, but not the creator of life. Right? The, the idol is a God who is weak and waits, but not the hound of heaven. The idol is a God who redeems man from, from a life of boredom, but not from a life of damnation and damnable sin. The idol is a soft God for a soft age, a half-God for those who believe they are half-sinful. Right, So it's refreshing, isn't it? It's refreshing, if not frightening, to work our way through the words of a prophet who is sent to remind the, the people of God about God's character. Right? And so... It is refreshing in a sense, it's frightening in another sense, because we're so unused to this sort of vision of our, our angry God. And a prophet is sent to remind God's people that the idols of their culture were not the living God, who was and remains to this day indignant against sin. So we're, we're reminded that God is not a fuddy-duddy half-wit who, who brushes our sins under the rug, right? But a just God, a just God who, un, who understands all sins to be an offense against him, every single sin to be an offense against him, an offense against his holy name. Right? The idol of our day and age, the idol of the church today, is an idol that has been born of our disregard for the sinfulness of sin. Right? We do not see what the big deal is. What's the big deal? You know, we're all doing pretty well. We're all getting along well. I mean, society's, it's weird, but it's rolling along. What's the big deal? And, and in that context, we begin to manufacture an idol, a half-god. That can deal with the half issues of our lives. There are no real big issues. They're all half issues. All we need is a half God. And so we've, we've forgotten that God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, is the God whose glory caused Isaiah to cry out in fear. You remember this passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah crying out like that. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
Seeing a vision of God reminded him of his utter sinfulness. Right? And our half-God barely ever reminds us that we're half-sinful. So in losing a grip on the offensiveness of sin in the eyes of a holy God who originally made us to live in righteousness and holiness and peace, we lose our grip on the God of the Scriptures. And when we, we come to a book like Zephaniah, it's as if we're, we're reading about some other God. Some other God other than the one we've been taught about in the American Christian church. It's the, it's the same tension we feel when sweet Jesus mentions the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the worm that never dies. And when he, he rebukes the Pharisees and calls them sons of hell. Sweet Jesus? What is going on there? We forget that the Son of God is holy, holy, holy. Right? And we forget... This above all, when we remove the offensiveness of sin in the eyes of God, we begin to believe that the God-man dying on the cross was kind of neat. It was kind of cute. It was a great ritual, right? Rather than viewing it as the unexplainable forsaking of the eternally begotten Son of God by the eternal Father. And the utter hatred of the Father for His Son as His Son became everything cursed. It's a holocaust. It's an annihilation. It's unmitigated wrath coming from the God who justly hates sin. If we lose sight of the utter holiness of God, we lose sight of the sinfulness of sin. Right? And and if we lose sight of that, we lose sight of the ugliness, the heinousness, the, the, uh, the, the cosmic trenches and the warfare against sin that the cross of Jesus Christ represents. That's what we lose out on. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God is holy. And that is the singular problem that has plagued mankind since Adam and Eve. Since Adam and Eve ate from the tree from which God forbid them to eat, rebels against a holy God so depraved that they could not save themselves, perpetual minimizers of God's holiness and their own sin. That's mankind. Perpetually minimizing the problem. Thinking that idols can do the trick. Judah knew of Adam's sin. Judah knew of man's rebellion. They knew of God's holiness, yet the idols of the nations which surrounded them seemed to offer to them a better life. A more fulfilling 80 years. Right? And, and the prophets, the pro- prophet after prophet is sent by God's grace, God's chosen means, told them to remember God's holiness. Remember the problem of sin. Remember the impotence of your idols. Move away from the idols and come back to the living God. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the, the tyrannical city. And that's Jerusalem it's speaking of now in this first verse. Jerusalem. You know, it's not Nineveh. It's, it's, it was Nineveh just before, but now it's speaking of Jerusalem as the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Jerusalem. 
the city of David, right, had filled her streets with the blood of children sacrificed to Moloch. They had placed idols in God's temple where his name was to be praised and honored and revered. They looked up to the stars for answers while the book of God lay buried in a corner of the temple, collecting dust undisturbed. She did not listen. She was unteachable. She did not trust in Yahweh. And finally, finally, that leads to them to stop, to stop drawing near to him. Why go to something that isn't, isn't powerful? Why go to something that isn't like the idols? There's a progression there, isn't there? Stop listening. Stop learning. Stop trusting. Stop drawing near. Stop listening, stop learning, stop trusting, stop drawing near. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, right? That hymn that we love to sing, that proneness to wander is our remaining sinfulness. And, and it works on us by getting us to stop listening, stop reading God's word, stop hearing it preached, stop gathering for the study of it, to, to just stop listening, Right then, then we leave off all the means that God has appointed for our learning, and if if we're not being reminded of God's power and goodness, if we're not constantly, because we're sinful, because we're short-sighted, if we're not being constantly reminded of God's utter holiness and power, then then we have no reason to trust Him. It seems easier to trust my bank account or to trust my education or to trust my idols than it is to trust this God that I've stopped pursuing, that I've stopped listening to. And finally, one just stops drawing near to God entirely, stops attending worship, stops praying, stops viewing life as a stewardship from God. Right, And then the idol tells you, what does the idol tell you? The, t- the idol just tells you, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And this is why, dear brothers and sisters, it's important that you never, ever coast in the Christian life. You cannot coast. You must work. You are called to pursue God. You are called to pursue a relationship with your God Almighty, to heed the words of the prophets when they come to you. And and you must be taught, right? You must not grieve the Spirit by yield, but, but instead yield to the Spirit. And this takes time. This takes dedication. This takes work. It takes prayer. And I think above all, killing distractions that compete with your pursuit of your Creator and the worship that is due to Him. Young men and women, that I said for you. Remove distractions that, that pull you away from pursuing a relationship with God. Remove those things. You will never be disappointed in pursuing God. You will perpetually be disappointed in pursuing all those distractions, all those glittering Nifty things that really are amazing, but do nothing to fill your heart with the love of Christ. Verses 3 and 4 show us that all Jerusalem had turned from God. Her princes, 
Within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. All of the offices that God had given to man in order to be a blessing to them, rulers, judges, prophets, priests, had become the opposite. Right? They were not a blessing, but they were a source of oppression to the people. Such is what happens when those given power from God turn away from his word. Right? They're, 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 um, they're not properly bounded in and informed by the word of God. And so power becomes abusive. Power without the shackles and restraints of God's law always leads to tyranny. And we are beginning to see this in our own nation, right? Divorce power from God's law, and it just leads to, I mean, not just tyranny, but wacko tyranny. Disgusting tyranny. Right? But, but here, here we see they've stopped listening to God, they've stopped drawing near to Him, and, and all the offices of the, the nation become corrupted. We know this from the Proverbs, this eternal truth. Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. Right? If the, if, if the king is not giving vision, if the priests and the prophets and the judges are not giving vision, then the people are unrestrained. And a lack of vision comes from throwing off God's standard of the, the standard of his word. It will always lead to flourishing. Right? A flourishing of sin. That's what it will lead to. And sin angers God, and God judges nations. And it's not until he sends leaders who have vision that the course of a nation changes. Those who have faith and vision, it's not going to change until God blesses us in that respect. Look specifically at the affliction the people are suffering at the hands of the leaders. The princes roar like lions. In other words, they threaten and take what they want from the people. They lay burdens of taxation on the people, right? They threaten and take what they want. The judges are wolves at evening. In other words, they are hungry and they have waited all day to consume some flesh. And they will attack savagely any chance they get. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. In other words, the false prophets do not care what they prophesy, whether it is true or false. All they prophesy for is for their own gain, right? Filthy gain. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. In other words, they, they had taken what is to be holy, God's temple, and defiled it. They, they would uh, do as they liked, not as the Lord liked. And that, of course, is always going to be an affliction to the people. When the, when the worship of God is perverted, it afflicts the people. Everywhere the people of God turned, their leaders were hindering them in pursuing their relationship with God Almighty. If they turned to government, there were crooks. If they turned to judges, there, there were power-hungry hungry abusers. If they turned to prophets, they received lies. If they turned to priests, the priests just suggested idols. But one thing has not changed in Jerusalem, verse 5. The Lord is righteous within her. 
He will do no injustice. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. Right? All the peoples are afflicted by sinful men, but the Lord still sits on his throne in heaven watching mankind. And contrary to what many of you feel, he is not inactive. He is not inactive today. He is not inactive then. He is active in all the courses of men. Right? Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. Every morning. There is an accounting coming for every action of man. And justice will rain down from God's throne as verdict after verdict is pronounced after ample evidence is supplied to God Almighty. And let God be true, though every man be a liar. All the men of Jerusalem were oppressors of God's people now. But God remained just, and his purposes would not fail because of the sin of his people. He does not fail. Let that fill you with courage. Let that fill you with hope as you suffer under the foolishness and wickedness of many who are in authority over you. God is seated on his throne. He reigns, and he does not fail. Right? Let that fill you with courage. It should fill you with hope. It should fill you also with patience. Notice that last phrase of verse 5. But the unjust knows no shame. All these princes, judges, prophets, and priests who are acting unjustly, making up their own standard as they go along, know no shame. We, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the goodness of shame. Those without shame do not know they have sinned against God. Or more precisely, they do not care that they have sinned against God. They have no shame. Shame comes when you know you've sinned against a holy God. Without shame, a person is unlikely to come to repentance and come to understand his or her own sinfulness. A likely indicator that you are moving further from the Lord is this, a loss of shame. Loss of shame for your ongoing sins, right? If your sin doesn't fill you with shame, then it means you're moving away from God. You are turning your back upon him. Verse 6, the prophet reminds the shameless people of the power of God. I have cut off nations. Their corner towers are in ruins. I have made their streets desolate with no one passing by. Their cities are laid waste without a man, without an inhabitant. The people of Judah knew this truth. Their fathers had experienced it in regard to their enemies. They would shortly know it of their own beloved um, cities. The sin of Manasseh had so saturated the ground with blood that there was no turning back even after Josiah's great reforms. The hardness of the people has been proven and the prophet has announced it. Again, if God judges nations and sees their sins, should we not be fearful as a people? I mean, as a nation, we do a lot of good. I realize that, as I'm sure Judah and Israel did, right? But, but we also do much evil, sacrificing our children, boasting in our wealth, pursuing our pleasure, going after idol after idol after idol, especially in our universities. Does God not see it? Does God not see that? Is this degeneration, an indication that God has already begun to pour out his judgment upon us and our nation, 
Will we see, and this is a frightening thought, will we see Washington, D.C. laid waste, desolate? Will the streets of Manhattan one day be desolate? Will our corner towers, our military bases and command centers be in ruins? Right? That day will come if we continue to blaspheme God and turn away from him. But I pray that, that revival comes instead. Right? That, that, but here's my point. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He does not fail. If he determines that the iniquity of the American people is complete, as he did with Judah after Manasseh, he will happily sweep up the righteous with the unrighteous in the judgment and destruction of this nation. I mean, this should be easy for Christians to accept, unless you're a, a foolish nationalist. I mean, this should, just be, this should just be standard course. God judges nations. Well, let's look. Okay, from the beginning to end, God's raising up and striking down. And, you know, we think he's sovereign over everything. We think that the nations are a drop in the bucket to him. And we think somehow, because we're 250 years old, that we're, we're uh, un... It's unimaginable that the United States wouldn't be uh, the, the top dog. But God hates our idols. And God sees every one of them. And God would happily, happily lay waste to our biggest cities. Happily lay, lay waste to our military. Because we are profaning his name and we are not doing as he commanded. Verse 7 I said, surely you will revere me, accept instruction. I have a little command there. Surely you will review me, accept instruction. This is if God is dealing with an unrepentant child. You didn't learn the first time I spanked you. Here comes another. Right? And surely this time you'll get it. Surely this time you'll get it. But they did not. As the text goes on, so her dwelling will not be cut off according to all that I have appointed concerning here, but they were eager to corrupt all their deeds. He's, he's destroyed nations so that his own people would, would see it and learn from it, and they just continue to go after their idols, continue to go after it. And we know from, from reading Ezekiel today that God sweeps them off the land. He destroys Judah. Finally, God speaks to the people with an announcement. God is coming as a witness against sinful people. He's coming as a judge. There will be nothing to stop him from rendering to all people what they have earned by their sins. But notice what he says first. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Who is to wait? Who's to wait? His people? What are they to wait for? For God's recompense for sins? That is where the text is going. That is where the text is going. And, and Calvin interprets this passage this way, and I agree. He, he writes, The prophet means that God was so offended with the contumacy, that's the rebellion of the people, that he would now plunder, spoil, and devour, and forget his kindness, which had been hitherto a sport to them. 
I shall come as a wild beast, as lions rage, lacerate, tear, and devour. So also will I now do with you. For I have hitherto too kindly and paternally spared you. We hence see that these things are not to be referred to the hope and patience of the godly, but that God, on the contrary, does here denounce final destruction, announce final destruction on the wicked, as though he had said, I bid you adieu. Be gone. And mind your own concerns, for I will no longer contend with you, but I shall shortly come, and you shall find me very different from what I have been to you hitherto. We now see, Calvin goes on, that God, as it were, repudiates the Jews and threatens that he would come to them with a drawn sword. And at the same time, he compares himself to a savage and cruel wild beast. What do we know from history? God destroys Judah by the strength of the Babylonian nation. The sword did come upon the land. For the day when I rise up as a witness, indeed my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. God's patience has run out for the people and they will be severely punished in due time. Though prophet after prophet had called them to repentance, they refused to repent. They loved their sin, and God would therefore drag them off of his land. Has God given up on his covenant people? Has God's judgment trumped or triumphed over his mercy? No. No, why not? He's not done working here. His son would come to his people in due time. But dear brothers and sisters, his people would even reject his son, whom he sent. The rebellion of this people, though having every advantage from the hand of God, is astonishing. Is it not the Jews continually, continually, continually through time reject God Almighty? And then Jesus comes, and he's rejected by the people. And then what happens in AD 70? Well, Jerusalem is destroyed again. But all of this has a very interesting purpose. All of this has a purpose. All of this is God working out his purpose. The Apostle Paul explains this to us in Romans 11. He asks the question, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? I mean, it seems like it. Seems like that promise to Abraham where he split the animals and walked through has been broken, doesn't it? Well, Paul answers that question. God has not rejected his people, as he? he says, may it never be. After using the example of Elijah believing himself to be the only faithful man left during his time and God telling him that he's kept 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, Paul says this, and it's amazing how it smooths out history. This just smooths out history and makes sense of the rejection of God by God's people. It says this, By their transgression, by the Jews' transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, the Jews. Oh, man. So the Jews are rejected. The the Gentiles are saved. The Jews are made jealous. 
by the Gentiles being saved. Now, listen to this. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The Jews are dead. Dead. Judged. Dead. And they need Jesus Christ to bring them alive. And then this warning, which we should apply to ourselves, and which will be the last thing I say. This is how Paul goes on. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness. If, if, oh, it's one of those if statements in scripture where you're like, Paul, How can there be an if here? But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Even in the rejection of the contumacy of the Jews, there came blessings to the Gentiles. And in the blessings of the Gentiles, there will come blessings to the Jews. And God's work is astonishing. God's work through time is astonishing in the end of all things. The end of all things we know is this, that mercy would triumph over judgment. And all of that mercy is accomplished through the one man, Jesus Christ. That is the one avenue. Believe in him and praise God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word of your prophet Zephaniah. We thank you for the way that it it reveals to us both your kindness and your severity. Father, forgive us for making an idol of you that is only kindness. And I pray that we would heed this passage, that we would walk with circumspection, that we would desire with all of our strength to honor you so that we would not be like the branches that were broken off, but that we would remain faithful. Father, by your Spirit, make us faithful. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.